Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 95, released on November 14th, 2018. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice. That includes iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. And do not miss the new episodes coming out weekly. Today we are going to talk about Facebook's new collaboration in France and two insolvency filings from European startups that have come quite as a surprise over the past two weeks. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Christian Owens, uh, the CEO and founder of Paddle, recorded at the SaaS Talk conference in Dublin by our founding editor Robin Wouters. We are also going to talk, as usual, about upcoming events and share books and stories that we have come across recently. I am your host, Andrei Degeler, tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer. Hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andrei. It's going well. I'm just about recovered from Web Summit, but glad to be here. How was Lisbon? Uh, the weather could have been better this year, to be honest, but it was quite a packed week full of exciting tech events. And we launched our report on Monday, which went really well, so... Happy to have that experience, but also glad to be home. Perfect. Too bad. Too bad I missed it this time, but I also had a great time catching up with work. And by the way, what's funny, I kind of expected that there would be fewer uh, news announcements uh, during a Web Summit just because most of the people, most of the journalists would be at the event, wouldn't have a lot of time and so on. But that was not the case at all, actually. The week was uh, not uh, quieter, and I think it was even more vibrant and more lively uh, than usual, which really surprised me a lot. Definitely, and, and I think the big news of the week was the announcement of Web Summit's new fund. Actually, at the conference, they didn't talk too much about that, but it was kind of the overarching kind of cloud over the event that everyone knew what's coming next from the team there. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing because uh, the fact that there is this fund that's called Amaranthine or whatever, that's a 50 million fund and so on, it wasn't known since May or something, but only on the first day or the minus first day of the conference, it uh, was revealed that it was uh, founded by actual uh, Web Summit people. But yeah, we'll see how that uh, how that pans out. But going to our agenda, what was the largest deal of the week? Yeah, so last week, the largest deal that was announced went to Bitfury. It's a company that describes itself as the largest full-service blockchain technology company in the world. Um, they just closed an 80 million US dollar funding round. So Bitfury is a Latvian-founded company, but they're headquartered in Amsterdam. They have locations all around the world, um, very big presence, founded in 2011. So if you're interested in learning more and getting more analysis from the weekly funding rounds, our paid subscription has all of them. Great. Yeah, that's a pretty big round uh, for a blockchain company, but I guess they're not doing blockchain per se, but rather services around it. And also, I think they produce hardware, right? Right, right. So they have um, several kind of companies underneath the Bitfury group, really have yeah. a lot of competencies there. 
So there definitely is a way to make money on blockchain. And they're they're really the the pioneers in this space. Um, kind of been around since before people were talking about blockchain. Yeah, I remember them really a while back. In particular, in all the Baltics-related uh, uh, reports, they were all always kind of a poster child. Right. Going back to the stories of the past week, what I was going to talk about today is actually something that has been going on for two weeks already. And these are uh, the insolvency filings that we saw uh, starting from the very end of uh, October. So over the past two weeks, uh, two startups that I said were generally perceived as reasonably strong performers on their markets have filed for insolvency. In total, these two startups, uh, Travelbird and Lasara, uh, raised more than 100 million euros and employed more than 600 people across their offices. Starting from the first one, uh, Amsterdam-based Travelbird, that's a travel booking platform, uh, filed for insolvency on the 31st of October. It turned out, actually, that the startup had uh, had issues for a while before that uh, due to what the company called seasonal fluctuations. Uh, what happened is that it basically didn't have enough cash at hand to pay uh, its suppliers, that is, uh, travel agencies and uh, hotels around the world. Travel Bird also had been looking for additional emergency funding to cover the gap, but failed uh, to do so, according to a few reports and the company's own statement uh, posted on the website. Fortunately, though, all the customers who booked travel packages on the platform are protected by a special Dutch organization that uh, sort of guarantees this booking. It's kind of an insurance company which was paid uh, by Travelbird from each booking or something like that. Also, most of the employees, as far as I understand, uh, are going to be taken uh, good care of, with probably an exception for uh, people who just started working at the startups. As far as I understand the regulations here in the Netherlands, uh, those people actually want to get much of a compensation. And I know that there are uh, some people who just uh, even moved to Amsterdam uh, to work at uh, Travelbird. Uh, someone even retweeted uh, one of our tweets about it saying that yeah great i just moved to the city and uh, now the company i wanted to work for is uh, bankrupt so what do i do now i do hope that all the people who found themselves in this kind of situation will land uh, on their feet i know there is a lot of uh, jobs in amsterdam so i do hope that everything ends well for for them and then fast forward uh, two weeks up to last Friday uh, when another startup, uh, Lesara, which is an e-commerce startup from Berlin, also filed for insolvency in a very similar story. So Lesara, for those who don't know, it is an online fashion startup. It sells inexpensive clothes, mostly produced in China, across Europe. So the story here goes uh, in a pretty similar way to uh, Travelbird. The company was doing reasonably well. It recently received 30 million euros in funding. That was in July. Uh, as far as I understand, the funding was mostly invested in uh, its new logistics center in the city of Erfurt in Germany. But then something went wrong. Uh, the founder again tried to secure a 10 million euro 
emergency funding round, but uh, failed and uh, had to file the for insolvency. Uh, there is also an interesting bit of context here, by the way, not sure if it's connected in any way at all, uh, but uh, back this spring, we also reported on that, it was revealed that uh, uh, Lasara wasn't entirely honest uh, with the revenue numbers that it disclosed to the general public. So in public materials, it's, it's stated that uh, the turnover of the company in 2017 uh, was about 150 million euros, but in the investor documents, uh, the number was more than twice as low. Uh, it was 71 million euros. And the reason for that, as it turned out, was that in the public materials, the company didn't take into account the returns. And that's a huge problem and a huge pain point for all online retailers. So here's a cautionary tale for entrepreneurs and uh, founders around. Try to look closely at your cash flow and work in a way that you won't need emergency funding because it appears to be in a really, really short supply around here. Yeah, and, and that's interesting and also um, some disappointing stories. But looking at insolvencies, this, this is something we want to do more work on in the future. So if there's a great story um, that's coming out of the European startup ecosystem on this topic, this is something we'd like to collect more robust data on. So, so do share that with us and we can try to make better sense about these cases. Absolutely. This is something that is not reported on enough uh, around the European ecosystem. And this is something that would be great to have analyzed. So if you have something to share, uh, please go ahead, uh, write us, uh, ping us on Twitter, just contact us in any way. Now, moving forward, Natalie, what, uh, uh, what's going on with Facebook in France? Yeah, so I've really been uh, looking at France and Paris in particular this week, um, because on Monday we started with the first um, Internet Governance GovTech Forum Summit. And also there's a 13th annual meeting of Internet Governance Forum. So a number of exciting announcements are coming out of Paris. Uh, but the most notable announcement so far is what we've learned that Facebook will now allow French regulators access inside the company in an effort to combat hate speech that's used across the platform. So this comes from a report by Reuters that states, and I'll quote, here. Macron's administration will send a small team of senior civil servants to the company for six months to verify Facebook's goodwill and determine whether its checks on racist, sexist, or hate-filled speech could be improved, end quote. So it's not exactly clear how these regulators will operate, but the partnership will include meetings in Paris, Dublin, and California. But speaking about the government's collaboration with Facebook, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said, and I'll quote again, it's a first, and I'm delighted by this very innovative experimental approach. It's an experiment, but a very important first step in my view, end quote. So according to the report by Reuters, Macron's government would like to extend this experiment to other internet giants such as Google, Apple, and Amazon. We'll, we'll wait to see if that actually pans out. But what's kind of remarkable about this collaboration is that it's quite a development between how government authorities in Europe have interacted with Facebook. You might recall that earlier this year, Germany enacted a law which fined social media companies for hate speech on their platforms, and not in a small way either. So this policy, though, according to some, it's backfired. And it's been suggested that the German law has actually amplified some of the speech that it was trying to curb. 
And it hasn't been smooth sailing elsewhere when Facebook tries to regulate itself in Europe. The company additionally came under fire for removing a controversial video posted by a Hungarian politician. And the uproar ended up giving the incident far greater attention than it had received initially. So Germany's law really was an extension of guidance that was put out by the EU Commission, which asked social media companies to act more swiftly to remove hate speech and terrorist content. This was really in response to a research project by the European Commission that found only a portion of hate speech was removed within one day of being flagged and sometimes was not removed at all. They found only 40% of the hate speech being taken down. One of the commission's guidelines called for greater cooperation with authorities in member states, of which this experiment in France really looks like a promising development. And you might have heard recently as well that Facebook hired the former British Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg to become the company's new head of global affairs, which many really see as a signal that there's going to be greater cooperation um, for Facebook and European governments. But despite these developments, Facebook still seems to be sending some mixed signals. The company's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, has been repeatedly called to testify before an international grand committee of lawmakers in London about the company's data privacy practices. But the invitations have been repeatedly declined. And some of the lawmakers from governments in the UK and Canada, notably, have pointed out that his declining the the invitation came with a very kind of tersely worded letter that um, they didn't see as very polite. Hopefully, though, Facebook's new collaboration in France will be a positive development there. The stakes are pretty high, though, because France is really working to clamp down on hate speech in the country after they found that a 69% rise in anti-Semitic activity during the first nine months of 2018. So it's, it's really important that, that this actually has a positive outcome. But last week, a poll in the United States conducted by Fortune magazine found Facebook dead last in a survey when it comes to user trust. So only 22% of Americans reported saying that they trust Facebook with their personal information. And when you compare this to other internet giants, Amazon was trusted by 49% of the users polled. So I looked for similar surveys done in Europe, and I wasn't able to find any that were quite as robust. But it does look that like user trust in Facebook across the continent is going down year by year, especially given the number of scandals that the company has been embroiled with. So it remains yet to be seen how this will work out. But I think it is a promising development in that the government is open to working with Facebook in a constructive way. And Facebook isn't going away anytime soon. Yeah, this year has been really tough for Facebook, I guess, across uh, across the whole world, not necessarily only in the US or in Europe. But uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised to see not the 22% uh, figure about Facebook, but rather the 49% figure of Amazon, so that half of the people would actually trust Amazon that much. Uh, even like there are a lot of parallels that could be drawn between all the big tech companies in this case. And uh, I would have guessed uh, that most of the people who do not trust Facebook anymore would not trust any other company either. But that appears to not uh, be the case. And I guess the great thing for Amazon, because they really 
really um, rely a lot on uh, people trusting them with uh, all the voice technology they are doing right now with the assistant, uh, with uh, a word uh, that, that is called now and all that kind of uh, things. Do you have any voice assistants uh, at home, Natalie? I, I do, actually. I have a few Google Home assistants in our house, but we actually don't use them very often. And when we moved from Germany to the UK, one of them actually became really confused and we actually can't use it. So I don't know what happened, but sometimes it'll just kind of speak randomly to no one. Um, or once I was in a phone call and it just started playing Janet Jackson mu music on its own. So we haven't put it back online. That's creepy. That's creepy. <laughs> I, I think it just doesn't like being moved from Germany to the UK. Yeah, I, I, it's possible. I mean, I hope I was hoping it wasn't sentient, but I mean, you never know. Next time it will start uh, playing some Schlager music from Germany. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. And you will have to send it back. Yeah. Looks like I'm the looks like I'm the last uh, technology journalist uh, in this world not using any voice assistant. I just I just cannot uh, justify uh, buying any of them. Like I, I can't see myself using them. I don't talk to things generally. Well, you know, we actually don't use it that as much as we thought we would, and most of the time, a Bluetooth speaker probably is kind of equivalent. Kind of use it for playing podcasts when you're in the kitchen cooking so you don't have your phone in there. But really, not as much as we thought we would use it. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking about this uh, new uh, Google product, the the one with the screen and uh, the speaker. That might be something interesting, but again, maybe for the kitchen. And, and you can really see the difference in trust because when Facebook came out with their screen, people went crazy. The reception was really negative, but Google screened product, people are not as discomforted by it. So it really does kind of point to um, the level of trust people have um, in these companies. And, and Facebook is not looking so great right now. And the, the Facebook view, um, which is their, which is their, um, their screen product was like almost universally panned. So it'll be interesting to see if anyone finds that under their Christmas tree this year. Oh, but this is this is actually a great example of uh, some companies being very tone deaf uh, when releasing stuff and other companies actually being able to ride the wave because uh, Facebook's portal, it was, yeah, like it has a mic, it has a camera, it can basically spy on you and so on. But, uh, but when Google released the, their product, they said explicitly it does not have a camera. It does not need a camera. We don't want to look at you in your bedroom or whatever, uh, wherever you use this device. And this, I think, was uh, one of the contributing factors of uh, the device being being received uh, much nicer uh, than uh, the alternative from Facebook. Right. So uh, next up is, uh, as I promised at the beginning, the interview uh, with uh, Christian Owens, the CEO and founder of Paddle, recorded by our founding editor Robin Wouters at the Stock conference in Dublin. I will leave you to it for about 10 minutes. We will be back soon. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Robin Walters from TechU. I'm here at the Sastok conference in Dublin. I'm sitting now with Christian Owens, who's the co-founder co and CEO of uh, Paddle. What's Paddle? 
Uh, Paddle is a software platform for other SaaS businesses to manage recurring billing, payments, and basically all the boring operational aspects of running a software or a SaaS business. Uh, is this the typical scratching your, in, your own itch? You, you were sort of experiencing these pain points yourself? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I started a software company before this and kind of grew really quickly and really realized how difficult it can be to sort of run and grow and scale a SaaS business when you're trying to deal with hundreds of different countries and currencies and payment methods and sort of all of these operational challenges. Um, so really started Paddle to really solve this problem because um, we don't think that all of these SaaS businesses that are here like at Sastock should be all building the same stuff over and over again um, as each other. Right. So you're solving a real problem for them. Um, how, do, how do they find you? Like you can't go to a conference every week and talk to SaaS companies. So, so how do they find you? What's your go-to-market strategy to ask a boring question? Yeah. We've been outbound sales driven since the beginning. So we've been around for about six years. Um, but our sales process has always been very consultative. So it's been a case of actually just talking to engineers and product people and CTOs um, with kind of really knowledgeable people outside and trying to just advise them on how they launch in a new market or how they would price in a different geography or sort of why their conversion rate's really low in this in this particular area or for this particular product. Um, and then if kind of through that conversation we can be helpful and then they decide that there is a kind of a valuable use of paddle for them, then kind of it just happens pretty organically from there. Right. So you've been around for six years now. You're now 130 people. Um, surprisingly, they're all based in London. Is there a particular reason you don't have like satellite or sales offices elsewhere? No, I think it's something that we're thinking about. So um, when we first started the business, we kind of we didn't really know how to build a brand or do marketing or any of these things. So our natural kind of conclusion was, okay, let's just talk to other software businesses, see if they have a problem, see if we can fix it. Um, and we started in London, and we were a really small team. Um, and naturally, the product lends itself really nicely to businesses who are in different geographies and expanding into other ones. So the process of targeting customers has always been, okay, whoever has a need, um, regardless of the geography they're in, because typically we're helping them expand internationally. Um, and kind of then the growth kind of got away from us a little bit, um, and we haven't really had time to grow to open another office. Um, so we're thinking about opening our first U.S. office um, early next year um, to kind of expand on some of the growth that we've had in in the U.S. The our largest market is still Europe today, um, which we're pretty well served um, for kind of serving those customers from London right now. Yeah. So what type of customers are they? What's the typical size? What's the typical vertical that they operate in? Or what's your ideal customer for yeah. you? So they're all software or SaaS businesses. Um, typically, they're $1 to $30, $40 million in kind of annual recurring revenue in size. Um, sort of businesses who've hit that stage of product market fit um, and are now figuring out kind of what are the levers to their growth. And one of those levers might, levers might be to um, tweak pricing, expand into a different geography, launch new products, try new marketing campaigns and things like that. So they're pretty resource constrained anyway. Um, and then adding to that resource constraint, you're typically telling them, okay, now you need all of this tooling, you need to integrate it with all of these other tools that you're using. And we're really there to solve that problem. It's, okay, you're using a payments provider and then a CRM and then all of these things and trying to figure out internally how you dedicate the resource. When you're a product-focused company trying to build a product, how do you dedicate that product resource to internal needs of just like building the machine that builds the machine? 
Um, so we're really building a platform for those companies where they hit that inflection point of things are getting really difficult, things sort of are challenging. We already don't have enough resources. We don't have enough engineers. Um, is there a solution that we can use to make this whole process a little bit easier? Yeah, makes sense. Um, you mentioned payment providers, which you told me earlier are both partners and sort of com competitors. Yeah. Uh, is that correct? And how do you think that will evolve? Yeah, so we... As part of managing kind of the, the billing process, which is everything from actually taking the payments to dealing with recurring billing and taxes and back office operations and reconciliation, all those things, um, it means like our biggest competitor is actually companies trying to buy all of these component parts themselves, um, integrate them all together or build a solution. Um, and so what we're doing is we're kind of augmenting their need for these payment providers, but then equally we still need to be able to take the payments. So we have really great relationships with um, credit card providers, with PayPal, with Alipay, with kind of all of these companies. So, and actually sort of one of the nice things about our business is we're non-competitive with those. We're competitive from a sales cycle of we're looking at the same customers, but at the end of the day, the volume still goes to the same place and those businesses still grow. So um, it's a very nice competitive relationship that we have with them. Sure. Is it actually even possible for you to sort of compete against them by becoming a payment provider yourself? Is that an option? Um, it's certainly a potential option. It's not something that we think much about simply because um, over, if you think about over the last 10 years or so, um, we've gone from maybe one or two ways of buying things online to one or two hundred ways of buying things online, um, be it from kind of wallets um, and kind of PayPal's growth and kind of all of these different countries. Um, payment methods to things like cryptocurrencies to um, Apple Pay and Android Pay and kind of all of these different sort of like um, intermediaries for payments but I actually think that the way that the payments landscape is going to change is that increasingly there are going to be more and more of these local payment methods the ones that are um, very very popular in a home market or a specific country like we see with like WeChat Pay in China um, where sort of so much transaction volume in the country is happening on WeChat Pay and I actually think the like the strategic thing for us to do isn't to try and kind of compete with all people and build the best payment thing in the world and um, and try and um, sort of displace those solutions but actually provide a solution where we can be the single integration that these companies do that give them access to these hundreds of different payment methods without them having to do the work themselves so that the consumers have the best possible experience it's trusted they understand how the payment method works and, and things like that great um, you're scaling up quite nicely uh, but what's your perspective on the on the London or UK startup scene these days it's interesting so we've been in London basically since we started um, so we moved to London about six months in we were just from outside of London um, previously and we moved to London to hire um, so in five years, we've hired nearly 140 people. Um, and that's, that's the biggest change that I've seen is the kind of access to talent um, has both got, I think, a lot easier as we've built a, built a brand, but incredibly more competitive among the London startup scene. Um, lots and lots of companies hiring for the same roles. Um, uncertainty around Brexit as well, which we've had about 50% of our company um, isn't sort of from the UK, like natively. Um, quite a vast majority of that kind of 50% that isn't from the UK is from Europe. Um, and we had great success hiring people and relocating them from Europe to London. Um, and kind of in recent months, sort of our sort of cadence in that area is like slowed significantly just due to uncertainty. Um, so that's been challenging. I'd say the other thing um, about the London tech scene at the moment is there's a lot of money 
kind of floating around from investors. Um, and I'm not sure how sustainable that is uh, with kind of basically lots and lots of companies raising lots and lots of money very, very quickly um, and, and sort of lots of new funds popping up without a track record and, and things like that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's what we see as well. Like an influx of capital is enormous. Uh, war on talent is really uh, something else in, in, yeah. in the UK. And then, of course, like Brexit. I wasn't going to mention it, but it, it is incredibly uncertain. And, and especially for a company like yours, if you say like 50% of your workforce. Um, so, yeah, is that a, like a major source of concerns that keep you up at night? I think whatever happens, we'll deal with it. Um, like we'll power through and, and we'll figure it out. But sort of, I think it'd be nice not to have to think about it. Um, if it just if it was a complete non-issue and we weren't having to have the conversation, um, that would be great. Um, but it is something that we're having to deal with. Um, and right now, it is putting a strain on our ability to hire people from Europe. Um, whether that will continue, whether it will get worse, whether it will get better, I don't know. But um, kind of, I think in the world of, of startups and building companies, sort of many, many things happen that are kind of uh, very difficult to deal with, be it from companies running out of money or sort of not able to raise money or it's kind of competitors um, and, and just kind of competing for talent anyway. Um, that sort of, I think we don't give enough credit to sort of the perseverance that, that no. kind of that sort of startups and, and startup founders have in their ability to just try and deal with an issue. Right. That's a great answer. Thank you so much, uh, Christian, for your time. Best of luck with Paddle. No, thank you. It's been great. Hello again. Welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu, episode number 95. This is still me, Andrew Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik, and we are talking about uh, the news coming from the past uh, week, as well as uh, what we can expect in the weeks to come. Uh, Natalie, can you tell more about what events we should be looking forward to? Yes, of course. So the events on my calendar this week, so I'm looking forward to heading to Dublin myself for Startup Weekend, where I'm a judge. Um, and also next week, I'll be the captain of the Entrepreneurship 101 track at Startup Week Dublin. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. But Andre, are you going to be out anywhere um, in the startup ecosystem at any events? Uh, not not that much. Uh, not this week. Not next week. Well, this week I will probably attend uh, a demo day of uh, Rockstar's uh, Smart Energy Accelerator. Uh, other than that, I'm really looking forward to going to Slush early in December and then to uh, the Seed Stars uh, CE Summit in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, uh, the week after that. But Natalie, what does it actually mean that you are the track captain? What uh, what do you have to do there? Yeah, so I am hanging out and kind of holding down the fort at the base camp for Startup Week and really organizing a number of the Entrepreneurship 101 events. I'm also going to be interviewing Eamon Carey of Techstars on Monday and also holding an event on Startup Growth on Wednesday. So kind of putting together a lot of interesting activities, tons of fun events, over 30 events next week in Dublin. So really excited to be a part of that and to really give back to the ecosystem. I think startup ecosystems work at their best when people are actively engaged and participating and volunteering their time. And it is Thanksgiving week next week. So I thought, what better thing to do than give back any way that I can? So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that sounds like a like a great event. So what else? 
Yeah. So if you are looking to build your event calendar for the rest of the month, um, you might want to put on there on November 21st in Paris, Rock Tech Paris, which Rock Tech turns entrepreneurs into rock stars. And they're these really intimate events of 100 attendees. And this session that's happening in two weeks time is dedicated to tech and music startups. So it's a really kind of creative and exciting program they have um, put together. So So they're bringing together companies from production to distribution and education, and they're showcasing some of the really best innovations um, in a series of three-minute pitches by the companies. And they have awards at the end. I really love the the Rock Tech events. They're cool to learn about new innovations, and I love pitching events. So that definitely is a highlight on the event calendar for me. Next, you also have from November 26th through December 2nd is Robotech's taking place in Tallinn. And Robotex International is the biggest robotics festival on the planet. And it's right before Slush. So you can head to Tallinn and then take the ferry across to Helsinki. And Robotex is pretty cool because it's both an expo and a conference. So it's really brings together a really international crowd. I think 94% of the speakers are international speakers. And the event is put on by some really great people and they're bringing together all the best in robotics and IOT from around the world. And you have a competition, um, workshops and tons of great speakers. So something definitely to check out in Tallinn. So these events and more are on our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know um, at the link in our show notes. Nice. There is always something to have uh, the fear of missing out about. So I'm definitely not going to Robotex, unfortunately, but I would love to. I hope, though, to see the organizers at Slush and ask how things went. Moving forward with our today's uh, agenda is uh, something that in my own notes is called the Kenya thing on the BBC, which actually is a recommendation that I wanted to share today. And uh, it is a great piece of reporting by uh, Dave Lee uh, for the BBC that's called Why Big Tech Pays Poor Kenyans to Teach Self-Driving Cars. So the whole idea is sort of in the name. But I will explain just a little bit. So if you know on the very basic man on the street level how AI generally works, which is kind of how I know it, you know that, for example, computer vision models would in most cases need a lot of annotated images to train on. And this is what uh, some people in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, do for a living. They basically spend eight hours a day looking at photos like those you can see on a Google Street View and just trace with their mouse around all the objects on the streets uh, from cars to lane markers to clouds in the sky to people to anything. Other people uh, working for the same uh, Kenyan company would be, for example, helping uh, the AI by Microsoft's Bing recognize different clothing items and stuff like that. So these jobs are there and uh, they are paid at about nine American dollars a day, which apparently is an okay wage uh, for uh, Kenya. What I wanted to say about it uh, before just uh, uh, sending you with the link to check the piece out is that it's not necessarily a bad thing. I do encourage you to watch or read uh, the whole piece to see why. Uh, But in general, I would say that it's really good to know how the magic that some founders like to talk about really works. So please follow the links in the show notes and uh, check out the piece. Uh, Natalie, what is it you can recommend today? Yeah, so, well, 
maybe this is a bit congratulatory here, but I would like everyone that's listening to the podcast to check out our new report that we launched at Web Summit that was done in partnership with Techstars and Stripe. So it's free to download. It The link is in the show notes. And something that I really enjoyed about doing this report, it's a, it's a very kind of long report, one of the longest ones we've ever done at tech.eu. And while it's the numbers and the investment trends that have gotten the most press, what has been the most significant part for me, and I think the most exciting part of the report, and what I really like to share is the personal founders accounts. So we have 18 case studies from different founders across Europe, each of them sharing their story in raising investment, bootstrapping, crowdfunding, some of their top tips for founders, some of their best ways of navigating this investment climate, or some of the ways their ecosystem has been supportive to their journey. And each one of these is so illustrative. And I've had such a great time interviewing the founders for this section. And I think there's so much that we everyone can really learn from from these stories. Each one of the stories is so unique. And what it shows you is that the founder journey in Europe is one that's highly individualized. There isn't a common story and everyone is on their own path and that each one makes their own success. And I really appreciate seeing that diversity across Europe. And I think it's important to share that there isn't one way to become a success. And I think it's important to remember that at the end of the day, that everyone has their own their own path that they're walking and and it looks all very different. And you can really see that in, in these different case studies in the report. So that's the part of the report that I appreciate the most. There's a lot more in there, um, but have a look and let us know what you think about it. And it's the first in a series of a number of reports we're going to be doing. And I would love to get as much feedback on it as possible. So have a look, download it, and let us know what you think. I have the report on my bedside table right now, reading through it. I can confirm that this is a massive, massive, massive piece of work. It's a great thing. Kudos to you, Natalie, for putting all this uh, all this together. This is a great source of information, but also inspiration about the European uh, ecosystem. So this is a great moment to leave you with uh, this and wrap up today's podcast. This is it. I hope you enjoyed listening to us today. Don't miss new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes. Just look for tech.eu podcast. Also, please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice if it allows it. This will help others find it and will mean the world for us. Just do it now if you can. Get your phone out of your pocket. Look if you can write a review or put a few stars into the app. And please do it for us. But also for the people who are looking for interesting podcasts to listen to. Now, tell everyone you know for whom it would be relevant about this podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, uh, opinions, anything at all at andri at tech.eu or natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. I hope you recover further from Web Summit. Uh, have a great rest of the week. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.